Now, today is the last week in our sermon series where we've been looking and talking about what is God's dream for our families. And today I want to jump right in, okay, because I really feel like this is such an essential part of understanding God's dream for your life and for your family. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Now, Luke chapter 15 is a section of Scripture where Jesus tells three of the most familiar parables in all of Scripture. And today we're going to be looking at one of those parables, the parable known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I've told you this, I think that's a terrible name for this story. It's a terrible name because it's not a story about just one son, although we tend to focus on the one son more than the other. And at very least, it should be known as the parable of the wayward sons instead of the prodigal son, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But that's, again, not a great name because the main character of this story isn't the sons. It's the father. And I think that this story would be much better known as the story of the gracious, amazing, wonderful, awesome father. This story is shocking when we properly understand it. And so that's my prayer today. This is a story that you're probably many of you very familiar with. And so my prayer for you today is that you would hear and experience the love of the father in a new way today. But before we can really understand this parable, something that I think is essential in understanding the parables is we have to actually understand what the context that led to Jesus giving us this parable is. Why did Jesus tell this particular story? What was he addressing? What was he up to that led him to tell this story? And I think once we understand that, it'll make the story really pop. It'll make so much more sense as we connect with it in this way. So here's what we learn. In Luke 15, very beginning of the chapter, it says this in verse 1, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Okay, now... Scripture here says something like tax collectors and notorious sinners, and we may just pass by it, okay? Because I grew up in Sunday school, right? I grew up in the church. So when I hear tax collector, what do I immediately think? Zacchaeus, right? And he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come. That's what I think of when I think of Zacchaeus, right? I'm going to your house today. That's what immediately comes into my mind. So it's easy for us to miss. Why is this such shocking information that Luke has written down for us? Because 2,000 years later, tax collectors mean something entirely different than it meant in this time frame. Okay, so historically, let's do a little quick history lesson here. I got a picture of the Roman Empire. This was the Roman Empire as it existed in the first century AD. And so you can see it extends. It's huge. You got, you got Great Britain all the way up on the top left, all the way down to India on the bottom right. This massive empire covered all around the Mediterranean Sea and, and just included so much of the known and quote-unquote civilized world of the time. Now, this massive Roman Empire, it's not that big a deal for us to think about because if I drive to Portland today, I can get on an airplane and I can be like 
in India tomorrow, right? We can cross vast distances incredibly quickly in our modern world, and our military the same. If there's a problem that arises in a part of the world, we can we press a button and in, in, immediately respond. But that's not the way it was in the time of the Roman Empire. So when the Roman Empire had to deal with uh, governing such a large territory, how did they do it? How did they manage governing a territory so massive? Well, here's map two. And this is actually quite shocking. What this shows you on this map is the way the Romans governed their territory is Augustus Caesar set up 28 legions of soldiers. Each legion contained five to 6,000 troops spread around the empire. You can see how many troops it took to be spread around the empire. Because if there was an uprising in Jerusalem, it could take a year for troops to get there if they have to come from Rome. So the way they managed this was by setting their troops all over the empire. But here's the thing. Troops and garrisons of troops, think about five or 6,000 men living together in a place. That cost a lot of money. You have to feed them. You have to supply them. You've got to build roads and infrastructure in order to keep that army supplied. You know the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that was true, basically. Everything led back to the Roman Empire. And so now, where's all this money going to come from to pay for these 28 legions of troops spread around the empire? Taxes. That's how they're going to do it. That's why Augustus Caesar in the year of Jesus' birth had to have put out a census. Why did they need a census? They needed to know who was there so they could pay their taxes. Now, I want you to picture this. Imagine the Roman Empire, which you may not know much about the Roman Empire, but you know they are historically brutal. The Roman Empire and the Roman military machine, the way they stayed in power was that anyone who opposed them, anyone who stood against them, was met with such brutality and ferocity that nobody would ever think of opposing them again. They, they were so cruel in the way they dealt with people that even the neighbors around would say, well, we're not, we don't want to go down that road, Right? I mean, there's famous stories of the Romans coming into cities and crucifying all the men and women and then hanging their children around their neck to make the process go faster. They were historically brutal. Now picture this. Your next door neighbor has just purchased the right from the Roman government to collect taxes from you to keep the military machine funded. And now he comes and sits down in your circle of friends. How do you view this person? How do you think about this person? See, these guys were hated in their society incredibly much. And the truth is, that's why when Zacchaeus gets called down from the tree, if you go back and read the story, it says the entire city was in an uproar. Well, why? Because this is unheard of. These are tax collectors. And they're not the only people who are present, according to Luke, listening to the story that day. It says tax collectors and notorious sinners. That word notorious sinners, how the NLT translate it, it's actually talking about a classification of people. So you might hear sinners and you think, well, I'm a sinner. Tim's a sinner. We're all sinners, right? No, no. Notorious sinners are people who have literally been put out of their place in society because their actions. They've been put out of the synagogue. They're not able to go 
and worship. These are prostitutes. These are thieves. These are people who have committed crimes that ostracize them away from society. So now can you picture the crowd? You've got tax collectors and notorious sinners who are there. Verse 2, this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain. What? Jesus is associating with such sinful people. He's even eating with them. That's a big deal. He's sharing his table with them. So Jesus told them this story. Okay, see the context. So they're complaining about the people Jesus is spending his time with. These are tax collectors, notorious sinners. And in response to their complaint, Jesus tells a series of three stories, okay? Three very famous stories. Now, that word that they were complaining can also be translated as grumbling or murmuring or slandering. Can you picture the Pharisees, how mad, how upset, how frustrated they are that this miracle-working rabbi teacher is spending his time with the wrong people? And so Jesus tells them the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll begin today. Luke 15, starting in verse 11 and 12. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, you have to understand this. The younger son goes to his father and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. When do you receive an inheritance typically? When the person dies, right? What he's saying to his dad is, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I wish you would just be dead so I could get my stuff. Just give it to me now. I'm tired of waiting around. Now, in our culture today, this is crazy. But imagine what it was like for Jesus' audience that's listening to him tell this story that day. Imagine what they're thinking when Jesus begins his story like this. I mean, how dishonoring a statement this is by the son to his father. And I'm sure the crowd that's listening is shocked. By this act. This is terrible. This is, this is awful. What is the father going to do? Surely this father is going to have this son punished. Maybe even according to the law, he's going to have him taken to the city gate and stoned by the members of society. Maybe he'll put him out. Maybe he will send him away into exile. And then Jesus says this. So, the, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Wait, what? The father did what? Can you imagine now what's happening in the crowd? This total scandal has just, Jesus is speaking something so scandalous that they're thinking, what a weak father. What a cowardly father. He's bringing shame on his entire household and all of the neighbors. This is absurd. Why would a father give in to a request like this? Now remember, in their tradition, in the Jewish tradition, the older son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. What that means is the younger son would have received about a third of the entire estate when the father died. Now the father gives him his share of the inheritance, and look what happens next. A few days later, this younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. Can you imagine he takes everything that now belongs to him, his servants, his livestock, his wealth, 
and he liquidates his share of the father's property and household, wealth that would have taken the father his entire lifetime to earn, wealth that would have been passed down to him from his father and his father before him. He takes his family's wealth and walks away from the community, which is another unheard of thing. Remember, these communities existed in symbiotic relationships, meaning that what each member of the community contributed to the community is how the community thrived. And now this kid's taking everything and leaving the community. And he's not just going to another tribe. He's not going to just go away to another area in the promised land. He's leaving to go live and spend his money on the Gentiles. And it says next, there he wasted his money in wild living. Now, we don't get any details about his wild living, except later in the story, the older brother is going to accuse him of wasting all of his money on drunkenness and prostitutes, right? So you kind of get the idea of what this kid goes and spends the money on. See, he's just won the lottery. He's literally just inherited this huge sum of money that he did nothing to earn. And instead of staying in place and investing it back into his family, he takes it and he wastes it. Did you know that this is actually what the word prodigal means? If you look prodigal up in your dictionary, here is how it defines it. Spending money or resources freely and recklessly wastefully extravagant. That's what the word prodigal means. See, in our culture, we mean prodigal. That means that they've walked away from the Lord because that's how we tell this story. But the truth is the prodigal son was a wasteful son. He was reckless son. He spent extravagantly on himself. And he spends it on stuff that no Jewish boy would have ever considered. He spends it on the stuff that they spent their life avoiding. He takes his wealth and his resources that took his family generations and wastes it all. Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. The man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The younger man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now, I am sure at this point in the story, the Pharisees and the scribes suddenly really like this story. They are smiling from ear to ear. Pigs? Pig food? Is there anything that could be worse for this Jewish boy? He's now starving. He's got no family. He's got no community. He's got no help. You see, for them, this is exactly what this boy deserved. This is surely God's justice in response to this boy's rebellion. But now think about the tax collectors and the sinners who are listening to the story. How many of them right there in that moment listening are themselves under the weight and pressure of their own life choices? How many of them do you think are actually at that place of being at rock bottom, just like the boy in this story? So Jesus continues. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. 
So he has this moment of clarity, he comes to his senses, and he realizes that he is about to literally die, and so he does something, he, he thinks, well, I can never go back and be a son, right? I, I can never go back and be his son, but my dad's really good and kind, maybe he'll take me on as a servant, because he's good to his servants, and being a servant is way better than what I am right now, dying in this pig pen, So he makes a decision to go home. But I just love what he does first. He practices his speech, right? How many of you have done this, right? Maybe you know, waiting up at home right now are my parents, right? So you're thinking, you're practicing that speech on the drive. Because when you're in real trouble, like you rehearse this, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Now, here's where the story really goes off the rails, where it just goes in a direction no one would have expected. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Now this, friends, is scandalous. This is insane. I mean, remember what the son did. Give me my money. He takes the father's money. He wastes it. He squanders it. He mocks the father. He lives in the wild. He's a sinner. He dishonors his entire family and his entire community. And now he's come back willing to beg the father to allow him to be a servant in his household. But notice the father is so loving and kind and compassionate and gracious. He doesn't even acknowledge the son's speech. In fact, He doesn't even let him finish the speech. Remember when he practiced the speech? There was a line that he didn't get to give. In the beginning of the speech, he said, please take me on as a hired servant. But he never made it that far this time because the father scooped him up. The father wouldn't even allow him to finish mid-sentence. He interrupts him. The father didn't say, yeah, you can come back and be a servant if you change your life. If You prove yourself. If you stop living the life you've been living, then we'll talk about, we'll consider what to do next. The father immediately receives his son. And I want you to see something all the way back in verse 20, something that's just critical to understanding the father in this story. Verse 20 says, so he returned home to his father. I just love this. And while he was still a long way off, His father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed them. Friends, you need to understand this. Do not miss this. The father was watching for his son. And on that day that he saw his son coming, he ran to him and kissed him. And notice that the kiss comes before the confession. The father begins to kiss and receive his son before his son ever speaks a single word. Father embraces his boy while he's still dressed in his filthy, soiled rags. 
The father does not say, oh, go clean this boy up and then we'll have a conversation. The father embraces him and kisses him and that kiss comes before the confession. You see, the Bible says that God did the same thing for you and I. Romans 5 verse 8 famously says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he didn't die for us once we came to him with our confession. Once we got our life cleaned up, while we were still sinners, while we still smelled like pigs, that is the time that he scooped us up and kissed us and wrapped us up and embraced us. You see, we do not change our lives in order to earn God's grace and forgiveness. Our lives change when we are empowered by God in response to His grace and forgiveness. You've got no hope to clean yourself up, friends. You're never going to make yourself right on your own before the Lord. It's the fact that His grace comes and He sees you and He scoops you up. This is the radical, scandalous grace of the Father. His boy is mid-speech and the Father's like, nope, I'm not having it. And He's hugging him. And kissing him. And he sends for his finest robe. Now let me ask you a question. How many finest robes does the father have? Just one. The word finest, he has one. This is the one reserved for weddings and feasts. And he has it brought and he places it on his filthy, dirty son. That's been sleeping in the pigs. He sends for the family ring. This is the symbol of belonging to the family. Belonging to the household. He says, everyone, we are going to celebrate today. I wish you could understand just how much our father delights in saving his wayward kids. Because what kind of party does he throw? Because there's parties and then there's parties, right? Which kind does the father throw here? Well, let's find out. Verse 25. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field working. When he returned home, listen to this, he heard music and dancing in the house. So the older son, he's still out in the fields. He's still out working. And what does he hear as he approaches the home? He hears music and dancing as he gets. This is a party, right? The house is full of people. There's music playing. There's dancing. The fattened calf is on the barbecue outside, right? The band is playing. Neighbors are pouring in. People are dancing and laughing. And he says to the servants, verse 26, what is going on? Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and would not go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, notice, this isn't my brother, this is, this is that son of yours, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, 
and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead, and now he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So you would think this would be incredible news for the brother, right? His younger brother has come home. He's alive. He's back in the household, but that's not how the older brother feels about it. He refuses to go inside the house. He refuses to participate in what he perceives as a shameful, dishonoring party. This is bringing even further shame on the family. So once again in our story, the father does something I just think is incredible. The father comes out to get his sons. And once he gets there, he doesn't scold his son. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't shake his head at him for this ridiculous pity party, it says the father begged him. He pleaded with him, son, come inside and join the party. But the older son, he's not having it. He tells his father, I've been slaving for you. That's the language he uses. I've been slaving for you. After all these years, you don't even throw a goat party for me and my friends. And now you're killed the fattened calf. what he said for a pathetic prostitute loving loser but the father continues to plead with him he tells him listen the son says all this time i've been slaving for you and then how does the father respond he says no dear son now remember when the younger son came back He was going to ask the father for permission to become his servant, to become his slave. Instead, the father meets him and says, no, no, you are my son. Now, the older son also identifies himself as a servant or slave. He says, I've been a servant and a slave. And the father says, no, no, you are my dear son. Now, you need to remember something that happened earlier in the story. Earlier in the story. When the, first, when the younger son came up with this plan, the father agreed and he divided his wealth between his two sons. Verse 12 says, between his two sons. What that means is, literally, the father had given everything that belonged to him to his sons. And the younger son had gone out and blown it all. But the older son had continued to live in the father's household, identifying himself as a servant or slave, but not realizing that actually he was the inheritor of this wonderful grand inheritance and that he was a possessor of this inheritance. And when the father says, listen, son, everything I have is yours. What he means is, everything I have is yours. And this is where the story of the prodigal son is so brilliant. As Jesus is telling this story with these religious leaders and scribes, he's telling this story about this wild kid that just messes up everything. And they're thinking, yeah, Jesus, preach it. We know sinners like that. Look at these guys. Then Jesus changes it. And they're standing on their moral high ground and they're feeling like, hey, we've been here slaving and serving all this time. 
Remember back in verse 15, the reason that Jesus tells them this story is because their complaint is that he's spending too much time with sinful people. So when Jesus tells them these stories, he tells them the reason that I spend so much time with sinful people is because that's what the Father does. The Father chooses to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. The Father welcomes those who are the furthest off, those who are a million miles away from home. The Father lays out a banquet party for them. The Father clothes them with His finest robes. The Father gives them a new identity as His beloved child. The Father cares for and redeems and restores them into place, in their rightful place as His sons and daughters. And the only people who seem to have a problem with this are older brothers. You see, Jesus is showing us that there's not just one wayward son in this story. There's two wayward sons in this story. Both sons in the story were alienated away from the father's heart. And both needed to come home to the father. Now, I, just, I share this quote whenever I share from this passage because it's just so impactful to me. From Henry Nguyen's famous book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he says this, The more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is and how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from a lust-filled escapade seems so, so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can be easily distinguished and dealt with rationally. You see, the scandalous grace of the Father is this, that whether it's legalism or license, the Father still invites us to come into the party. If you're the tax collector or you're the self-righteous Pharisee, that Jesus says there's room for you at the Father's table if you would only come inside. Friends, I believe today that the Father is inviting you to come inside to the party. And you don't have to get yourself all cleaned up to come into the party first. In fact, it's impossible for you to. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. It is the good news for you and I today. It is an invitation for you, a wayward son, to come home. It's an invitation for you, older brothers, to return to the Father's heart. The Father is inviting you right now to come inside. See, both of these sons still had a lot to learn, didn't they? Both of these sons still had a long journey ahead of them. But that journey was only going to be made possible if they came inside with the Father. There was no chance they could have ever changed themselves on their own, by their own ability, out in the field. They needed to come into the Father's house and experience the love of the Father. God feels the exact same way about you. He's not interested simply in your service or sacrifice as some kind of taskmaster. He wants you, all of you, to know how much you are loved 
He wants you to know his love and experience his love. When we started out this sermon series, you know what God's dream for your life and God's dream for your family is? That you would know his love for you and in return you would love him back. That's God's desire for your life, that you would experience his love. It's the only chance you have for real change. And understanding that, friends, is where everything in your life will begin to change. As I prepared this this week, and band, you can come back up. As I prepared this week, one of the things that really hit me on Tuesday was this reality. That so often, because I believe in this room right here this morning, there are wayward sons and daughters. People who have walked away from their relationship with Jesus or people that have never entered into the household of God who haven't made that decision to enter into God's house. And I believe our city is absolutely full of wayward sons and daughters. But I just want you to imagine with me for a second if the wayward sons and daughters who come to their senses and start to make their way home to the Father's house would have first encountered the older son in the field instead of the father. What happens if that younger son on his way home runs into his older brother in the field? It's a very different story then, isn't it? But friends, this is why it's so important for you and I to really grasp and understand and be transformed by the heart of the father. Because we don't want to be the older sons in the story. We want to be and learn to love people like the Father loves them, that understands that they can't clean themselves up, that they'll never be able to make it right, that there's not enough restitution in this world available to them for them to get themselves right with God. The only chance they have is for us to say, come on, we got to take you to the Father. you got to meet my dad. Because once you do, it'll change everything. You see, we expect people to get their lives in order. And then they can come. Because as an older brother, we want to keep the house clean. We want to keep it pure. We want to make sure that no bad stuff comes into the house. That's what the older brother wanted. He said, this is a scandal. Well, I'm not going in there. But the father said, no, you don't get it, son. He was dead and now he's alive. You've got to come and celebrate with me. He told in the same uh, storytelling session, he tells a story about a shepherd who's willing to leave behind 99 sheep to go and find the one that's missing. That's the heart of our father. And today, he's here. And his desire is today that you would know and experience his love. That you would know and experience his love that's bigger than your mistakes. That's bigger than your life issues. That's bigger than your problems. That you would experience the love of God that's so deep and wide that it would simply change. It would change you from the inside out. I believe with all my heart on this Father's Day, very best thing you and I can do is return to the heart of the Father. Is to really consider ourselves. Am I the older brother in the story? Am I the younger brother in the story? 
Am I keeping people who are trying to find their way to Jesus at arm's distance? Or if I have the heart of the Father to say, listen, you stink right now, but come on. Because my Father can clothe you in, 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 a, in his best robe. He'll put the ring on your finger. He'll give you his own shoes. He'll transform your life into something new and different. That's not something you and I can do. That's the Father. And if you are here today, my prayer for you, friends, is that you would just, for a moment, allow the Father to draw near to you. The Bible says that if you draw near to Him, He draws near to you. It's what happened in this story. When the Son turned around and made His way home, the Father saw, oh, and then He went straight out. Same thing will happen with you today. If you take a step toward the Father, you will discover He will scoop you up and He will lavish His love upon you.